this morning's message is Jesus' authority over sin. Jesus' authority over sin. If you do not have a Bible, either on your phone or in person, we do have some in the back. Uh, those are there for you to use, and you are more than welcome to take those home with you. Those are our gift to you. Matthew chapter 9 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, the Borgen Project is a nonprofit that works to end extreme poverty around the world, and they put together a list of the top 10 biggest issues in our world today. Here's what, they, here's what they said. They said poverty, religious conflict and war, political polarization, governmental accountability, lack of education, lack of access to food and water, unsanitary conditions and disease in developing nations, credit access, discrimination, and obesity. It's a list that they came up with just a couple years ago. As you consider our world today, or even just our society here in Nevada or in the U.S., would you add anything to that list? Are there problems that you would add on to there? Maybe some of you would add climate change, uh, climate change perhaps. Some others would add uh, particular ideologies. But the problem with this list and many, many others is that while they do sometimes identify troubling problems in our world, they always completely ignore the biggest problem of all. They ignore the problem that has actually led to all these other problems. And we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've seen Jesus demonstrate his power and his authority over many different things. We've seen him demonstrate his power and authority over disease by healing the sick with a word. We've seen him demonstrate his power and authority over demons, over the spiritual realm, casting them out with a word. We've seen Jesus demonstrate his power over nature, calming a storm with a word. He's demonstrating his authority as the king of the kingdom of heaven. But this morning, we're going to reach a high point in the display of Jesus' authority. We're going to see Jesus demonstrate his authority over something that is a bigger issue than disease, demons, storms combined. We will see Jesus demonstrate his authority and ability to deal with man's biggest problem, the problem of sin. Let's turn to our text now, starting in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we left off last week, after Jesus has cast out hundreds, if not thousands, of demons out of two men in the region of the Gadarenes, sending them into a, a herd of pigs. We saw at the end of our text last week, at the end of chapter 8, that the people of the Gadarenes come out, and they are, they are panicked, they are afraid of this man who has done this. They're afraid for the economic future of their region. They're afraid of his spiritual power, and they beg him to depart. 
belief, in essence, rejecting Christ. And so as we turn to verse 1 of Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus doing this very thing. He gets into a boat and crosses back across the Sea of Galilee. During his earthly ministry, Jesus does not force himself on people. When they reject him, he goes. And so he gets back in the boat, probably the same one that he got to the Gadarenes in and crosses back to the western shore of Galilee, to his own city, Matthew tells us, which is Capernaum. Capernaum. Jesus did live there. He did own a home there. Mark's account of our text this morning in Mark 2.1 tells us that Jesus was actually at home for a little while. That actually hanging out at home, resting probably, before word starts to spread. Now remember, just a couple days before, Jesus was in Capernaum and he had healed a large crowd of people. That's not something that they would forget. The news spread, he's back. He's back. And soon a crowd had gathered outside of his door, Mark tells us, and Luke as well. Mark also tells us in his gospel that as this crowd is there inside and around his house, Jesus is preaching to them. He's teaching them the gospel. He's teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. And Luke tells us, in fact, that in the audience here are uh, not just common people, but Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of Jewish society. They are there listening to Jesus as well. You have a mixed crowd, all manner of people there listening to Christ. Yet of all the people present in that audience, some of whom would have been very prominent, no doubt, of all the people present there to listen to Christ, one man in particular draws the focus of our narrative and the focus of Jesus himself, a paralytic. Matthew tells us in verse 2 that some people bring a paralytic to Christ as he's lying on a bed. Mark and Luke add a little bit more detail here. The, the crowd, they tell us, is so big, they cannot get this man in the front door. So what they actually have to do is they go up on the roof, they make a hole in the roof, and lower this man in. They are determined to get him to Christ. Matthew, of course, does not provide us this detail, and he's probably less concerned with how the paralytic got there and more concerned with the authority of Jesus that's going to be on display in our passage. Matthew just tells us that they brought this man to Jesus on a bed, which is probably a hard stretcher with a bed mat on it, perhaps some kind of uh, blanket that he was carried in, something like that. According to the other Gospels, there were four friends that brought this man to Christ, doing whatever it took to get him there. Some of the background details surrounding this story. Now the paralytic is there before Christ. And the obvious problem that everyone in the room can see is what? He's paralyzed. Everybody can see that. It's obvious. And we don't know the cause. Matthew doesn't tell us, but it doesn't matter. He had some kind of serious physical affliction, an injury perhaps. And they brought him here for probably one simple reason. To be healed just like the last time Jesus was in Capernaum. Paralysis is a genuine problem. It's nothing to scoff at. But as we'll see in a moment, it is not this man's ultimate problem. So as these friends bring the paralytic to Jesus, Matthew tells us in verse 2 that Jesus sees their faith. He sees their faith. He sees their genuine confidence that he is able to deal with this situation. It's very clearly displayed in their actions. Lowering this man through a roof, that's not an easy thing to do. They trust Christ. They believe in what they know of him. And the friends of the paralytic man really set an example for us, don't they? 
They persevere in bringing their friend before Christ because they know only there, only with Christ, will their friend receive what he truly needs. And it's probably true. They're not fully aware of Jesus, uh, what Jesus is going to do, right? They probably just think he's going to heal this man. But nonetheless, even for that problem, they see Christ as the solution. Christ is the answer. Only he can help. We should follow their example, brothers and sisters, in faithfully bringing our loved ones, our friends, even our enemies before the throne of grace in prayer. Jesus does not walk on the dust of the earth any longer. He sits at the Father's right hand, but make no mistake, he is still ready to receive our quests on behalf of others in prayer. And there's no better place that we can bring those things to than to the Savior who has all authority and who can see and deal with their true needs with his wisdom. We should follow the example of these friends in bringing our loved ones before Christ in prayer. Now going back to verse 2, sometimes people think that their faith, their faith in the text refers only to the faith of the friends specifically. That Jesus sees the faith of the four and because of that is going to bless the paralytic. But while it does include the faith of these four friends, it doesn't exclude the faith of the paralytic as well. Jesus sees the faith of the friends in their intercession for their, their friend, the paralyzed man. But Jesus also sees the faith of the paralytic too, who believes in Jesus' authority and ability to heal him. What Jesus does next in response to the faith of these men is not like what he did the last time. He was in Capernaum. He does not first heal the man's body. Jesus has his priorities in order. He deals with the biggest problem first. He does not say to this man, be healed, but instead says to him, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. I love this response from Christ to this man because it so clearly demonstrates his heart towards his sinful people. First, what does, he, what does he say to the man? He says, take heart, take heart. In other words, be of good cheer, have joy, be encouraged, there's good news coming. If paralysis was the only problem that this man had, then the forgiveness of sin would not be good news. There would not be a reason for this man to take heart if paralysis was his only problem. No, Jesus speaks directly to the heart of this man. Jesus' encouragement here, take heart, indicates that this paralytic, this paralyzed man, was aware of the guilt of his sin. And that while he was dealing with paralysis and the difficulties and grief that that would bring, his soul was burdened by his sin. That is why Jesus says to him, take heart. You see, sin has this effect of weighing down the heart, weighing down the conscience, Burdening people, depressing them, making them downcast. King David describes his own experience with unconfessed sin in Psalm 32, 3-4. He says, when I kept silent about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The awareness of our guilt before God weighs on us when we acknowledge it. It caused major distress. And again, this man surely was downcast like David. And so Jesus, first, right out of the gate, speaks a word of good news. There is reason to take heart. 
There is reason to be encouraged. There is a way for sins to be forgiven. Good news is coming. Next, Jesus addresses the man in, in, in such a sweet way. Jesus doesn't have to save him, but he calls the man my son, my child, right? This is a compassionate term, a term of gentleness and affection. Jesus does not coldly condemn this man for his sin. He does not put on a judgmental demeanor and tell him to get out of here. No, Jesus shows him kindness, even in this small phrase. Jesus does not treat this man like a, a task to be accomplished, but as a person who is in need of compassion. But the most significant thing that Jesus says comes next in the, in the last part of the verse. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Finally, the good news comes into bloom for this paralytic. His sins have been forgiven. In, in, in the Greek, this is in the present tense, which really tells us that as Jesus says these words, he is forgiving the sins. This is happening as Jesus is speaking. He's not telling the man about something that was accomplished already a long time ago. He's not telling the man about something somebody else did. Jesus is the one granting forgiveness to this paralytic. He is the one performing the act of forgiveness as these words leave his lips. Think about that. To Jesus, this man's biggest problem was not his paralysis, but his sin. It was the greatest burden that he carried. And what a picture that this man's paralysis paints of the incapacitated nature of sinful man of us in our natural state. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1, that because of our sin, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, spiritually dead, that we could do nothing to save ourselves, that we could not perform any good work to earn salvation. Just like this paralyzed man physically could do nothing either. He had to be brought to Christ. He could do nothing. Now, death and paralysis, of course, are two different things. It's not a perfect analogy but his physical condition was in a way a picture of his spiritual condition, incapacitated by his sin. And Jesus, just like he's done every other instance leading up to this point, in a word, in a word, removes that burden from him. He doesn't offer a sacrifice of a bull or a goat for this man's sin. He doesn't go into a long, rambling uh, you know, sermon for this man's sin. In a word, he forgives him. And it's not a partial forgiveness. It's not a 98% forgiveness. It is a 100% full forgiveness that this man receives here. All the paralytics bringing to Christ is his sin and his faith. That's all he's got, his sin and his faith. And even his faith is a gift from God. Friends, this is what we call justification by faith alone at work. Being made righteous and forgiven by faith in Christ alone. The man couldn't do anything, no good works, he's paralyzed. It is his faith that Jesus delights in. As Thomas Cramer, the English reformer, encourages us, consider diligently these words, without works, by faith only, freely we receive the remission of our sins. What can be spoken more plainly than to say that freely without works, by faith only, we obtain remission of our sins? It is simple. This man is forgiven by Christ through faith in him alone. 
Jesus doesn't tell the paralytic to get his life together before his sins can be forgiven. He doesn't tell the paralytic to do just a couple more good works and that'll seal the deal. Jesus doesn't tell him to spend more time at synagogue or to read his Torah more. And, and then he'll, he'll really get to that forgiveness. No, Jesus knows that this man, like any one of us, cannot do anything to wipe away his own sin. And so Jesus graciously, of his own 100% work, forgives him. And friend, let me pose this to you. As you are here today, do you consider your sin to be your greatest problem? Like Jesus does. Our focus is so often on what's outside of us, right? Just like the people there that day are focusing on this man's paralysis. We focus on our job, our finances, our relationships, our health, our self-image, whatever it may be. But the biggest problem that ultimately causes all these other issues and problems that we tend to get stuck on is sin. It's sin. And only Jesus can truly deal with that. But this raises another important question. Does Jesus really have the right to do this? Does he really have the authority to forgive this man's sin? Does he really have the ability to deal with man's biggest problem? After all, people generally cannot forgive others in such a way that removes the moral guilt of sin. Is, is Jesus really able to do this? In fact, that's the question that the scribes are asking in verse 3. The scribes, hearing this, Seeing this, say to themselves, this man is blasphemed. Right again, the scribes and Pharisees are part of the audience. They are paying attention to what Jesus is saying. They're watching his every move, and they certainly have some thoughts about what Jesus has just said. Matthew tells us they're saying to themselves that Jesus is blaspheming. And, and Matthew's not saying that they're talking amongst each other but rather that they are talking within themselves, right? That's, that's a more literal way we can understand this. They're, they're, they're thinking these things. This is their internal monologue. Jesus is blaspheming. And consider from a first century Jewish perspective why they might arrive at this conclusion. Uh, because what Jew in their right mind would think that some human being could forgive sins, right? Only God can do that. Only God can do that. In fact, in, in Mark 2.7, Mark's account of the same event the scribes are saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the crux of the problem here. That's why they are uh, very displeased with what they're hearing from Jesus. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a legitimate question. After all, what is sin? What is sin? 1 John 3, 4 tells us sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin is breaking a law. Whose law? God's law. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a great definition for sin. Sin is any want of conformity, any, any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So in other words, sin is when we do not conform to God's law or we break God's law. That's what sin is. And because it is God's law being broken, because that's what sin is, then only God can forgive the offense at the end of the day and remove the guilt. When people wrong us, we forgive them, but that's in a relational sense, not in a legal sense. And we see this reflected in passages like Psalm 32, 5. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It is God forgiving the sin. 
Isaiah 43, 25, God's speaking to his people here. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, if, if you've sinned, which we all have, you don't need to forgive yourself. That's not something you need to do. You need God to forgive you. That's the need that each one of us have. That's why David writes in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned, even though his sin was against other people. It was ultimately against God. So the objection of the scribes here, who can forgive sins but God alone, that's a theologically reasonable one for a first century Jew. God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is to do that? Who, who does he think he is? And look what Matthew says next. Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows exactly what these scribes are thinking. He knows exactly what's going through their minds. So he asked them directly, why do you think evil in your hearts? Notice that Jesus has a supernatural knowledge of what's going on inside of them. And he has that same knowledge of each one of us. Right? You and I can't know the heart of a person deep down. We can't know their thoughts, but Jesus can. Uh, the hard hearts of the scribes are not hidden from him. But Jesus does not describe their protest about him, forgiving sins, as, as something that's pious or theologically sound. He doesn't applaud them. But he describes their internal accusation as evil. It is evil for them to accuse him of blasphemy. When in reality, right, they are so full of unbelief, they cannot see the Son of God sitting before them. They are so full of unbelief that they cannot accept his words or his deity. In fact, by accusing Jesus of blaspheming, they are actually the ones blaspheming him. That's why Jesus describes their thoughts as evil. Well, the reality is that, that the paralyzed man and the scribes have sin. They both have sin going on here. They don't respond to Jesus the same way. The sin of the paralytic has brought him to a place of seeing his need for Christ. But the sin of the scribes has brought them to a place of hard-hearted unbelief and rejection of Christ. And so as we move to the next verse, we see that Jesus is not going to let this accusation lie. He's not going to just overlook it. But he's going to shut them down with an indisputable proof of his legitimacy and his deity. One of the things that Jesus loves to do in the Gospels is ask questions. All the time, Jesus is asking people questions. Not because he doesn't know the answer, but he makes powerful points by asking them questions. He gets them thinking. And this will be no exception here in verse 5. Jesus asks the scribes, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. In other words, which of these two things is easier to say without being proven a charlatan, a con man, a blasphemer? Which of these is easier to say without being proved wrong? Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Right? Anybody can tell another person that, I have forgiven your sins. You have no more guilt before God. But there's no way you can prove them wrong. You, you, you don't have this little you know, meter of sin that you watch drain out or something like that. There's no evidence that what they are saying is true. Could be, could not be. It's invisible, right? You can't see it. But to say, rise up and walk to a paralyzed man requires proof on the spot. 
and, and really demonstrates whether a person is truly who they say they are, that they truly have that authority, or that they don't. You say to a paralyzed person, rise and walk and nothing happens. Well, clearly there's, there's your answer, right? You're dealing with a con man. The healing of the body is visible. It's immediate evidence. Jesus is not saying the forgiveness of sins is less important, but that it's less evidently verifiable. The harder thing to say is rise up and walk. But there's something that Jesus wants the scribes and the crowd to know. He tells us in verse 6 that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Sins. We've seen Jesus refer to himself with this title all the way back in Matthew 8.20. And Jesus again refers to himself as the exalted reigning king and judge, described in Daniel chapter 7. This messianic king and judge, Jesus says, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And he's going to prove it right now. But there's that word again, right? Authority. Authority. It's been the theme of Matthew chapter 8 and even into this part of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus' authority is the central theme of this portion of Matthew's gospel. Back in verse 2 of our text for this morning, Jesus implicitly claimed to forgive sins. But he's doubling down here, right? He's, he's, he's going to go one step farther to prove that the paralytic man's sins are forgiven by his authority. Now, Jesus isn't just claiming to be the Son of Man. He's claiming to have divine power and authority to forgive sins. We can't miss that. And his power and authority comes, as he says, on earth during his earthly ministry, even before his exaltation and ascension. No other human being could rightly claim this power because no other human being has a divine nature nor the right to judge and forgive sins against God. No person can do that. And Jesus is saying, I can. Some major implications here. Now, he's already said your sins are forgiven, right? He's already said the easier of the two things. He's already addressed the paralytic's most pressing problem, but in order to prove that he really does have the power to forgive sins, he will now say the harder statement to put the scribes to shame. We see in verse 6, he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, go home. This is the moment of truth, right? One of two things is going to happen. Either the, the man will be unable to do so, he'll lay there on his bed, still paralyzed, Jesus will be proven a fraud. And if this happens, why would this man have any assurance that his sins have been forgiven? Right? He shouldn't have any. But if this man is healed, the implication is startling. If the paralyzed man can walk at Jesus' command, if Jesus' authority is proven here too, then there is every reason to think that the man's sins have been forgiven. That Jesus is exactly who he is claiming to be, and that Jesus truly does have the authority to forgive sins on earth. He has authority over man's biggest problem, sin. So will the man walk? Will Jesus be able to offer the solutions of forgiveness and healing that he promises? We see in verse 7, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The paralyzed man who is laying on his bed for who knows how long, who no doctor could heal, in an instant rises up, picks up his bedroll, and goes home. He's no longer paralyzed. His muscles are not atrophied. He does not need to learn how to walk again or for the first time. Now, normally, if somebody recovers from paralysis, which is not something that happens often, it could take anywhere from six months to years 
of physical therapy in order for them to walk e even functionally, right? They might even have difficulty after that point. But not this man. He picks up his bed and goes home immediately. Jesus' authority is displayed here in an amazing way. Can you imagine the hush in the room as this man got up and went home? Can you imagine the joy at his home of his family? Mark and Luke tell us that the paralyzed man went glorifying God. Amazing thing. Right, this is the mic drop moment. This is where Jesus completely shuts down the scribes and refutes their challenge that he's blaspheming. Jesus has just proven he can do what he says. That he does have the authority on earth to forgive sins. And it's very clear for the paralyzed man. They have been forgiven by none other than Jesus himself. There's another response we see too, though, in verse 8. When the crowd saw it, Matthew writes, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. We see a response of fear here. It's interesting, isn't it? It parallels the responses of the disciples on the boat in the storm, the residents of the Gadarenes. We see fear in all these cases, but it's not all the same kind of fear. People in the Gadarenes were afraid because of what Christ would cost them, the damage he might do to their economy. But the crowds here are fearful in a reverential and awestruck way in response to the authority and power that Jesus has. And really, they should be afraid. They should have reverence. of The one who has the power to forgive sins because he is clearly the judge. The one who can forgive sins essentially controls the eternal destiny of a soul. The crowd is right in their response. And this, this fear ends up leading them to glorify God, to worship him to marvel at this amazing thing and at the amazing person, Jesus Christ. And it wasn't because of the healing. Matthew tells us it was because God had given such authority to men, the authority to forgive sins to men, specifically to Christ. They marveled that God would give this authority to any person at all. Luke 5.26 quotes the crowd as saying to themselves, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, that's a positive response, especially compared to the scribes, right? But this wonder and this amazement they have at Christ is actually insufficient. It's insufficient. Here's what I mean. They, they believe that Jesus can forgive sins. They're willing to accept this reality about him. But we have no record of a single person upon seeing this. and No record of a single person actually going up to Jesus to say, can you forgive my sins too? They watch him do it for the paralyzed man, but seem to think they have no need of it themselves. They see an amazing thing. They reflect on an amazing reality. And that reflection on an amazing thing and, and marveling does absolutely nothing to change their standing with God. Being amazed at Jesus does not remove the guilt of our sin. You can think Jesus is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But that does not forgive your guilt before God. What was it that the paralytic had? Not good works. Not a great pedigree. Not surrender, but faith. Faith. Uh, the, the paralytic believed and trusted in Christ alone, and he was forgiven. Justified by faith. Faith 
is something that receives from God. Marveling in amazement, we should marvel and amaze at God, absolutely. But apart from faith, it does us no good. Man's ultimate problem is sin. And the ultimate effect of sin is to separate man from God. Paul writes about this in Romans 5.1, that through being forgiven by faith, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do we see in our text? The paralytic, estranged from God by his sin, believes in Christ, he's forgiven, he's counted righteous, he is justified, and he is reconciled to God. He goes home rejoicing at peace with God through Christ. As, as Spurgeon says, the joy of pardon has a voice louder than the voice of sin. God's voice speaking peace is the sweetest music an ear can hear. That man heard sweet music that day. Man's biggest problem is sin. But man's biggest danger is the wrath of God upon that sin. It's only through faith in Christ alone, trusting Him in His life, death, and resurrection, that our sins can be forgiven. By faith in Christ alone. And friends, the only way that Jesus could pronounce those words to that paralyzed man was because of what He was going to do on the cross a few years later. To die as a substitute for sinners. To take our sins upon himself and to die for the punishment that you and I deserved so that we might be forgiven and that God might be just. The record of our sin being dealt with by Christ in our place. Jesus can say that this man is forgiven because he is going to merit that forgiveness for him through a perfect life of obedience to God's law and his death in place of sinners. Something else we need to see, too, in this passage. We've hinted at it a little bit already. and Jesus doesn't say it outright. Matthew doesn't put the explicit detail in our text. But consider what this passage is implying about Christ. He is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. He is divine. The scribes were right. Only God can forgive sins. They actually reveal something about Christ when they are trying to accuse him of blasphemy. That because God can only forgive sins, and Jesus can forgive sins, Jesus is God. And his authority to do this is not derived from God like a deputy wearing a badge that he gets from the sheriff. Right? Jesus doesn't have a little, uh, a little license right, to forgive sins from the Father. Jesus can forgive sins because he is divine, equal with God the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity in flesh. An amazing thing. This passage actually reveals Jesus' deity to us and out of the mouth of his enemies, no less. An amazing thing. Friends, do you have faith like the paralytic? Have you believed in Christ? Do you believe that he is able to forgive your sins, that through his saving work on the cross and out of the tomb, that he is powerful enough and sufficient enough to deal with your sins? And not 98% of the way, but 100% of the gift. If you do not, then consider what we have seen in our passage today. Now, perhaps you might think that your sin is too great for Christ to deal with, that he doesn't really want to have anything to do with you, that uh, you're too awful, that your sin is too awful for him to want to deal with it, that it's just too great or too gross or, or, or too much of a burden for him to carry or to forgive. But remember something. In, in our text, the hearts of the people, of the paralytic and of the scribes, of every person in that room was laid bare before him. There were no surprises for Christ. What's more, he forgave the paralyzed man with a word. 
with merely a word, and he did so compassionately, tenderly, kindly. That is how Jesus deals with all who come to him, how great or how small their sins may be. It's an amazing thing, right, to think that the glorious Son of God would take on human flesh and dwell among sinners like us, kindly forgiving us, kindly forgiving us, not begrudgingly, but eagerly, compassionately, even to the worst of sinners. Jesus speaks, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven when they come to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Him alone for the forgiveness of sins. He has the authority to forgive even the worst ones, to wipe clean the deepest debt of sin. To quote Spurgeon again, We are today accepted in the Beloved, today absolved from sin, today acquitted at the bar of God. We are now pardoned. Even now are our sins put away. Even now we stand in the sight of God accepted as though we had never been guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation for those which are in Christ Jesus. There is not a sin in the book of God, even now against one of his people. Who dares to lay anything to their charge? There is neither speck, nor spot, nor wrinkle, nor any such thing remaining upon any one believer in the matter of justification in the sight of the judge of all the earth. Amen. And when Jesus says to us, Take heart, my child, your sins are forgiven he has the authority to mean it. And these things are true for us too. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, what a picture of grace that we see in our text today. What a picture of your authority, Lord Jesus, do we see in our text today. Lord, any one of us would stand before you in ourselves guilty for our sins having no ability to deal with that guilt before God. What a comfort and what an assurance and what an encouragement we see in our text that you, Lord Jesus, have the authority to forgive sins and that you do so freely to your people. That you do so kindly and compassionately to your people. Lord, we are unworthy of such a gift of grace. We know that we have sinned against you, that we have messed up our lives in so many ways. And that you would be willing to forgive us, not because of anything good in us, but because of who you are. What a thing to bring joy to our hearts. I pray it would today. Father, if there are those who do not know Christ, who have not trusted him, who have tried to withhold their sin from him, or who deny that they even have sin at all. Draw them to Christ, I pray. Show them their need for Him, but also show them that He is sufficient and willing for them. You are such a good and gracious God to provide us with such an all-sufficient Savior. We thank You for His authority, and we, Lord, we rest in His proclamation that our sins are forgiven because of what He has done. Bless your people today with the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.